Good morning. Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Glad to be here this morning. Thank you, Joe, for leading us. I was joking with Holly. I was sitting right in front of Holly Hammonds. And so I was joking, it's like uh, the praise band and surround sound this morning. She was right behind me. So it's good. Thank you. If you would open with me to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3. We're going to be flipping around a little bit this morning, but we're going to start here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I think it's on page 1091. So you may have noticed that uh, last week, if, if you were here, Josh mentioned it, but you may have noticed that we're not in the Minor Prophets this morning. We're taking a, a short break from, from that. We'll get back to those and finish those up, I guess, after the new year. Um, but we're actually starting a new uh, kind of short <clears throat> series. I guess you would call it a series, even though it's only going to last a few weeks um, this morning. And we're going to be uh, thinking through and, and talking about and, and studying and those kind of things, what the Bible says about how we should set up uh, the church. And so let's look, let's, let's begin in First uh, Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 1 um, and, and read through verse 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so as we read this um, passage, we're, we're struck here by the, the fact that, that in God's church, he has set up two uh, specific offices, right? That of, of overseer. Um, the, the office of overseer is also sometimes called elder or um, shepherd or bishop, or uh, we normally refer to it as pastor. And then we have the office of, of, of deacon. We studied through uh, what the Bible teaches about deacons several, several years ago. Uh, we made some changes in, in how our deacons function and what they do. We made some changes also in, in what our constitution and bylaws say to, to reflect that. And so over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to study and discuss and think through what the Bible says about the other office, that of elders 
we're pastors. So we're going to talk about a lot of things over the next several weeks, but today, uh, the question that, that we want to explore, that, that we want to talk about today is, how many elders or pastors should a church have? How many elders or pastors should a church have? And we're going to see, the Bible doesn't give us a specific number, doesn't say one or six or five or three or anything like that. But we're also going to see that the Bible, the, the pattern that, comes, that becomes clear in the New Testament is that each individual church normally is to have a plurality of pastors, more than one pastor. It doesn't give us a, a number, but there, is, there does seem to be a pattern of, of more than one. And so in the next few minutes, I want to offer six reasons why it's most healthy, most biblical for a church to have a plurality of elders or, or pastors. And I'm going to use six words, and we'll expand on those as we go, but six words, six reasons why. And the first one is the Bible. The second one is wisdom. The third one is balance. The fourth one is continuity. The fifth one is shepherding. And the sixth one is burden. Bible, wisdom, balance, continuity, shepherding, and burden. Okay? Before we get into it, though, let, let's ask another question. What, what, is, what are we talking about? Right? When we say elder, bishop, overseer, shepherd, pastor, leader, there, there are these different words in the Bible that seem to all refer to the same office that we normally refer to as, as pastor. What are, we, what are we talking about? And so to be as clear to the way that, that, that we're accustomed to thinking, what we're talking about is um, that it's best, it's most healthy, it's most biblical for a church to have multiple senior pastors, or multiple lead pastors, whatever the word is that you want to use for, for that. Okay? Now that probably raises a lot of questions in our, in our minds. Um, how does that fit with being congregational? Right? We're, we, we're Baptists, so we believe that the church is congregational, meaning that the authority for uh, decision-making, the authority for, um, for, for the, the uh, government of the church lies within the congregation, not in a group of, uh, of people, not in one person, but in, in the congregation. Right? This is why we have business meetings, members meetings every, every quarter. This is why the, the members have to vote on the, on the budget each year, and the finance committee can only spend the money in the way that the church says that that that's to be spent. And if something comes up throughout the year to where, uh, where we need to spend money in a, in a different way that's not outlined in the budget, we have to go back before the whole church and have a meeting and, and have the whole church approve that, right? That's just one area of finances. But in, in every area of, of church life, we believe that the congregation is the, the ground of authority. So one question that may come up is, how would having multiple pastors, multiple elders, how would that fit within this understanding of congregational government? It's a good question, um, and I don't have to answer that question this morning. That's good. Uh, we'll talk about that in the, in the coming weeks, right? Another question that may come to mind is how would, that, how would having multiple pastors, how would having multiple elders, how would that fit within the, the committee structure that we have in place, right? We have a personnel committee, a nominating committee, finance committee, building and grounds committee, di different committees, different ministries. How would, how would having multiple pastors, multiple elders fit within that structure that we already have? Would there need to be some changes made? Would we keep that structure? How would, how would that work? And again, that's not a question I have to answer this morning, but that's a question that, that, that may come up in the, in the coming weeks. 
We may ask how this would affect how our, how our pastoral staff is, is organized. Again, that would be a question that, that Josh Green or Jake or someone will, will answer in, in the coming weeks. Today, though, this morning, my task is to, is to offer six reasons why uh, it's most healthy, most biblical to have multiple elders, multiple senior pastors, plurality of, of leadership. And so the, the first reason is, is the Bible. The Bible tells us so, right? The Bible instructs us this way. The Bible is, is our authority. We say that, we believe that, um, and, 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 and it's true. And in the Bible, God reveals to us the, the way of salvation. He tells us how we're to live as Christ's followers. He tells us how we're to treat uh, and relate to other people. He tells us how we're supposed to treat and relate to other believers in his church. And in the Bible, he also tells us how his church should be organized. We've already read one passage here this morning, 1 Timothy 3, that, that, that talks about two different offices and the qualifications for those offices. And, and again, that will come up in more detail in, in the coming weeks. But he tells us how his church should be organized, and, and he tells us that the church should have multiple pastors, multiple leadership. And there's several, several places where we see this, and so we're going to be flipping a little bit, but that's okay. You can turn with me if you want to, or you can listen if you don't, if you don't want to. But, but first of all, he, he does this in a couple of ways in the Bible. The first way he does it is by direct instruction, right? So look with me to Titus chapter 1. The, the background of the book of Titus is Paul, uh, you know, Paul was a missionary. He went on these different missionaries during his uh, lifetime, and one of his missionary journeys carried him to the island of Crete. We know where Crete is. It's still called Crete today. It's there around Italy, um, an, an island um, nation. And, and Paul visited this, this island on one of his missionary journeys, and, and as he was preaching the gospel, it seemed some people believed. And there were enough people who believed for Paul to set them up as a church. It wasn't just one or two. It was enough that they could, they could form a church. And so the background of the, of the letter of Titus, Paul uh, went there on this missionary journey. He preached the gospel. Some people believed, and he decided it was time for him to move on and go preach the gospel somewhere else, right? He wasn't a, Paul wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a, a church leader. He was a missionary. And so he decided to, to move on and, and go preach the gospel somewhere else, but he left this younger man, Titus, behind. And, and we can see in... Um, in verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, it says, this is why I left you in Crete, right? So Paul left Titus behind in Crete when he moved on to the next place. He says, this is why I left you there, so that you might put what remained into order. And so they started this, this young church, this new church, and he leaves Titus behind to help them organize themselves into a, uh, into a functioning church. And look what he says in verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders... Pastors, bishops, overseers, shepherds, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so here we have Paul telling Titus to appoint elders in every town on the island of Crete. Okay? There, there's a couple ways to understand this. One way is that, that there were multiple towns and, and each town had a church. And, and so Paul tells them to appoint multiple elders, meaning one elder in each church in each town, right? Appoint elders in every town. So you have one elder in every town, and, but, but together they're elders, plural, right? I don't think that's the right way to understand this, though, and we're going to see more evidence um, later. I think the way that we understand this is that they're appointing plural elders or pastors in each town. And so the elders are plural, the pastors are plural, the town is singular, the church is singular. 
And so I think he's telling, directly telling Titus here, here's how you're to do it. Set up multiple pastors, multiple elders in, in, in these churches. So this is the first way that the Bible shows us this, is, is by direct instruction, Paul telling Titus how to do it. But there's a second way, and there's, there's more examples in, in the second way. The second way is by indirect example, right? So we have direct instruction where Paul's telling Titus, here's how you're supposed to do it. But then we also have indirectly through examples. So let's look at, look at several churches in the New Testament and look at the example that we see from them. So open with me to Acts chapter 14, if you will. There, there, there are multiple places in the New Testament where we see a single church with multiple elders or, or pastors. Some of these passages will be more clear than others, but all of them make the point. So look at, look at Acts chapter 14 first. We're going to, again, kind of be flipping around a little bit today, but that's good. Acts 14, and look at verse, starting at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So Paul's now on another missionary journey. He stopped in this place called Lystra. Um, he had been in, uh, in Derby before. He had been in Iconium before. And he had, his, his preaching had caused kind of a, kind of a stir, stir up. And some of those people followed him to this new town of Lystra. And when they got there, they stoned Paul. They threw rocks at him until the only, the only reason they stopped is because they thought he was dead. Okay? Turns out he wasn't dead, but they thought that he, that he was. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city... And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So these people stoned Paul. They thought he was dead. He wasn't dead. He, he, he rose up, and he not only continued his missionary journey, but then he went back to the very towns where those people had stoned him. This is an awesome story. Back to, uh, to verse 21, though. When they had preached the gospel to that city and have many, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the, of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so here Paul says, or Luke says, writing about Paul, that one of the things Paul did on these missionary journeys was he appointed elders in every church, right? Notice that, again, the word elder is plural. Again, elder means pastor, overseer, uh, leader, all those words. The word elder is plural, and the word church is singular. And so it seems like from, from this passage that, that at least this church in Lystra, where Paul was, had Multiple pastors. One church with multiple elders, multiple pastors. Flip over to the next chapter, Acts chapter 15. What about the church in, in Jerusalem? This is the, the passage about the Jerusalem council where there was a disagreement between Paul and Peter and they, uh, they met in Jerusalem and, and worked this out. We're not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but look at verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So again, there are elders in Jerusalem. One city, multiple, multiple elders. Look down to verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. 
And so here it's even more clear because it's not only one town, but it's one church, right? The church in Jerusalem has greeted them. The apostles welcomed them. The church in Jerusalem welcomed them. And the elders in Jerusalem welcomed them. And so there's a singular church in Jerusalem and there are multiple elders or or pastors in in Jerusalem. Verse 6, again, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Skip down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So again, here there are multiple elders, one, one church mentioned, the church in Jerusalem. Look to the next chapter, to chapter uh, 16, verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Again, one city, Jerusalem, with multiple elders or, or, or pastors. Okay? One more place. Flip over to chapter 21. Look at verse, chapter 21. Look at verses 17 and 18. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And so again, here's, they're gathering in Jerusalem with the brothers there, with the church there, and there are multiple elders that are, that are present. So it seems like not only Lystra, but it seems like also the church in Jerusalem had multiple elders, multiple pastors. What about the church in, in Ephesus? Flip back to chapter 20, Acts chapter 20. This is maybe the most clear place where we see this. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. The context here, Paul is again on one of his missionary journeys. He's traveling around different places. He's already been to Ephesus, and there's a church there already. And he's traveling back uh, near Ephesus. He doesn't have time to stop and actually visit the church in Ephesus. And so we're going to see in verse 17, he stops at a place called, um, called Miletus, which I'm, which I'm assuming, I'm not familiar with the geography, but I'm assuming it's a, it's a place on the coast where his ship was going to pass by. And we're going to see what happens there. Verse 17. Now from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and you can read that on your own later, it's this this awesome charge that Paul gives to the elders in in Ephesus. But look what happens. He stops in this place called Miletus, and he calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him. He wants to speak with them. He wants to visit with them. He hasn't seen them in some time. If you continue reading, you'll see that their their meeting ends with, with them hugging and tears running down their faces because they know that they probably won't see each other again. And in fact, they didn't end up seeing each other again before Paul was killed. But the, but the point I'm trying to make here is that he called the elders, plural, from the church, singular, in Ephesus. And so again, there's one church in Ephesus and there are multiple elders, multiple pastors in that one church. One other place where we see this for uh, the church in Ephesus, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I mentioned how Paul had left uh, Titus behind in the, on the island of, of Crete to help set up the church. Well, Paul did the same thing with Timothy in Ephesus. So when Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy, Timothy is working as a uh, somewhat equivalent to what we might call a church planner today, right? He left, left Timothy behind to set the church up and, and, and to make, make sure that things were, were running smoothly, that kind of thing, while Paul went on to the next uh, missionary stop. Look at chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 17, he says, let the elder, again, remember, he's, he's instructing Timothy here about the church in Ephesus, okay? He says, let the elders who rule well 
be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out their grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then in verse 20, he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And so again, in this passage, Paul mentions uh, multiple elders, and he's talking about the one church in, in Ephesus. And we know he's talking about the one church because he's writing this letter again to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he's telling Timothy what to do in Ephesus. But we also know because of verse 20, he says if there is an elder, if there's one elder among the elders, if there's one elder who persists in sin, he says to rebuke that elder in the presence of all, right? Well, what does all mean? He doesn't mean rebuke them in the presence of every person that's ever existed in the history of the world, right? He's not talking about all the people that exist right at that moment. He's not saying gather all the people of the world together. He, he's saying here, I think, gather or, or rebuke this elder publicly before all of the believers, before the whole church. Not something that should be done in secret, but it's if there's an elder who persists in sin, right? It's not, it's not if the elder is called in sin one time and repents of it, right? It's, it's an elder who, who persists in sin. It says to rebuke him openly in the presence of all, meaning all of the church. And so again, here we have one elder among several elders who's being rebuked before the, the one church. And so it seems like the, the church in Ephesus also have multiple elders, multiple pastors. He called them to him in Miletus. He talks about them here in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 5. Two more places. Look, at, um, look at, at, at Philippians. Turn back to Philippians. Philippians chapter, chapter 1. Here Paul's writing a letter to the church in, in Philippi. And in verse 1, he addresses the letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, right? So the church at Philippi, all the believers, all the saints at Philippi, and the overseers and the deacons. And so overseers is another word that's used in the New Testament to refer to this same office, elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, shepherd, leader. These different words all refer to the same office. He says here, greet the believers, the, the church members, greet the overseers, and greet the deacons. So this one church in Philippi has a group of deacons that he's greeting, and it also has a group of elders, a group of pastors that he's, that he's greeting. So the church in, in Philippi had multiple elders or pastors. And there's one other place that we see in the Bible. It's in James chapter 5. Look to James chapter 5. Some of you may be familiar with this passage already. James chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, is, any, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so here again, we have elders of the church. The elders are plural, the church is singular. And so the, the, the people here that James is writing to, James is not writing to anyone. And this is, this is even, even more significant because James is not writing to any one specific church, right? Like Paul's writing Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He's writing Philippians to the church at Philippi. Here, James is writing to uh, just a group of believers who are scattered over different places. And yet in this passage, it seems like James is, is assuming that 
even though these different believers will be parts of different churches, he's assuming that all those believers will have elders in their church. And so James, it seems like, is assuming that all the churches in the area that he's writing to would have multiple elders in their, in their singular church. So in the New Testament, the, the clear pattern that seems to emerge is for each church, each local church, to be led by more than one elder pastor. In fact, there are only four times in the New Testament where the word elder is used singular, where it's not plural. There's only, only four times where that happens. Two of them were in 2 John and 3 John, where John refers to himself as the elder, kind of a title for himself. One is in 1 Peter chapter 5, where uh, when Peter addresses other elders, he refers to himself as an elder. We're going to look at that passage a little bit later, but he's talking to the elders, and he says, I'm a fellow elder, and so it's singular there. He's referring to himself, and then the passage in 1 Timothy 5 we've already mentioned where it talks about an elder being in persistent sin. There's only four places where the word is used in the singular. Every other time it's used, it's used plural. So there seems to be only, only two kinds of churches in the New Testament. Um, one is churches that have multiple pastors or elders, and then the other are those that are so new that they haven't really been set up that way yet, and they're being instructed, like Titus and Ephesus, where they're being instructed to appoint elders and, and pastors. So there are churches that have them already, and there are churches that are working to, to put that structure in, in place. Historically, our church has been led by, by just one senior pastor and a, and a group of deacons. We have had associate pastors in the past. We have, uh, we have two associate pastors now. We have other, other people who, who are in leadership positions in our church right now. Joe is, uh, leads us in, in, in music and in worship on Sunday mornings. Matt leads our children's ministry. Matt McBroom leads our children's ministry. Um, Austin Hammonds is our missions director. And so we have, we have different people that are in these different positions of, of leadership, and yet historically we've only had one senior pastor, one lead pastor. But the Bible seems pretty clear that it's healthiest and most biblical for a church to be led by multiple pastors. There may be some of us, even right now, that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable with this, with this sermon so far. And, and, and maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable being challenged to think a different way about how best to organize the church. But, but I would think probably not a lot of us, right? We've had conversations like this uh, along these lines in, in different settings for years now different Bible studies, things like that. Different people have begun asking questions. If the Bible says this, why do we not do it this way? Those kind of things. Sometimes our, our traditions are, are kind of hard to break. Sometimes it's hard to think differently about things that we've done the same way for, for so long. But clearly the Bible describes the ideal for the church as being led by more than one pastor. So the first reason that we should have multiple pastors, multiple elders, is because the, the Bible says so. The second reason is, uh, is just because of wisdom, okay? And we're going we're gonna to see some more practical reasons here, here now. So the second reason is, is just because of wisdom. Leading a church uh, requires a lot of wisdom and it requires a lot of decision-making. The pastor has to decide uh, what sermon series to preach, what Sunday school curriculum to use, deciding what ministries to prioritize and, 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 uh, within the church. And, 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 you know, churches can't do everything, so there has to be decisions made about what's best to do and what's... Maybe not, not the best thing to do right now. The pastor has to, has to decide about partnering with, with other outside 
uh, ministries like we do now with Dare to Care and with FCA and, and, and different groups like that. A pastor has to decide how to best counsel different members in different situations. Um, and, and some of these situations are really difficult because the pastor has a hard time even seeking advice from other people in some of those situations because of confidentiality. You can't talk to someone about some of the things that, that you know and some of the decisions you have to make because you have to keep that confidential. We all have blind spots. Every single one of us have, have blind spots based on where we grew up and how we were raised and, and different life experiences that we've had and, and different difficulties that we've overcome in our lives. And, and the Bible tells us that wisdom, uh, there's, a, there's more wisdom to come in groups than in individuals, right? Proverbs chapter 24 says, in, a, in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Proverbs chapter 11 says, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And so another reason that it's healthy and good and biblical to have multiple pastors is because of wisdom. When there's a group of, of, of men that God has called to be pastors together making these decisions and having input in them, there's, there's wisdom there. Um, similar to that is, is the third reason, because of, of balance, the, the balance of strengths and weaknesses. Right? A pastor uh, may be very gifted, may be very talented. He may have many, many strengths. Our pastor right now does. But every pastor also have weaknesses, right? And our pastor right now does too. All pastors have many, many strengths. All pastors have weaknesses as well. If you think about all the pastors that you've had over the years, many of them had many strengths. But if you're honest with yourself, they had they have weaknesses too. Some of you may remember, uh, some of them you may remember as being great pastors, as, as great uh, pastoral care type uh, people. Some of them you may remember as being great preachers. Others maybe as great, great teachers. Others you may remember as being great counselors. Some you may remember as being hard workers or great leaders. And, and yet if you think back over that list again, you'll also, if you're honest with yourself, you'll also remember different pastors who had different weaknesses. And that's not necessarily a negative thing. It's not even necessarily a, a bad thing. Everyone has both strengths and, and weaknesses. No one person has all the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And so having multiple pastors makes the church healthier. Not because there won't be any weaknesses if you have multiple pastors, right? But because there will be weaknesses, but those weaknesses won't be in the same areas. Where one pastor has a weakness, the other pastors may have strengths in that area. And where those pastors have weaknesses, the other pastor may have strengths in those areas. And so you're able to, to compensate for one another. Multiple pastors who work well together can, can compensate for those, for those weaknesses. And so the, the result is that the church ends up being healthier, the church ends up being better led, and, and be, ends up being shepherded more, more fully. The fourth reason is because of continuity. Because of continuity. We've probably all been part of a church when a, when a pastor has moved on, or re, maybe he retired or resigned, or in some cases maybe, maybe he was asked to, to leave. And often when that happens, the church struggles for a while until a new pastor is called. People end up leaving the church often. Ministries often take a hit. Lay leaders in the church try to take up the slack, but they're limited in, in avail availability and time and other concerns and things like that. So, so things end up being left undone. People end up falling through the cracks. And so one of the reasons that, that this happens is because of how churches are organized with just one elder, with just one pastor. Um, you may have heard it said before that a, that a church tends to take on the personality of its pastor, right? 
It's because with only one pastor, the church inevitably becomes focused on, on him, on that one person. In many ways, he sets the agenda for the church. In, in many ways, he leads the church according to his own calling and his own gifting, and, 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 and the church be- becomes focused on, on what he's focused on. When a church has multiple people in, in senior or lead pastor positions, then they are able to lead the church together. They set the direction and the focus together. They take the responsibilities of ministry together. And in that case, when one of those pastors ends up leaving for whatever reason, the other pastors are able to kind of close the ranks and, and more easily take up the slack, and the church continues being led well. I'm not saying the church doesn't miss the former pastor, obviously, on a, on a personal level. I'm not even saying that the church doesn't feel his, his loss in, the, in, in, in the, the ministries and his strengths and abilities and, and things like that. But, but when a church is led by multiple pastors, multiple elders, most of the time the loss is not as great as it would be when the one leaving shouldered the entire pastoring responsibilities. When a group of people are lifting a heavy piece of furniture, if one of them lets go, it, it becomes harder, right? But the others are able to, to compensate and, and the furniture stays lifted. When one person's lifting the furniture by himself, if he lets go, then the furniture drops, Right? And so this is another reason why it's good for churches to be led by multiple pastors, multiple uh, elders, because of continuity. And then the last two reasons are, 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 are still practical reasons, but they're, they're a little bit more, more serious, a little bit more weighty, I guess you might say. The Number five is because of, of shepherding, because of helping to shepherd the church. Look, look with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 3. This is the passage in 1 Peter I mentioned where the word elder appears singular. He says, So I I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then look what he says. The command he gives to the pastors, to the elders. Verse verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter tells the elders here to shepherd the people, to oversee them, the ones that are, that are given to them, the ones that are under their care. Think about all, the, all, all, all that that analogy entails. What does it mean to be a shepherd? Think about all the things a shepherd does for his sheep, a literal shepherd. Shepherds feed the sheep, they protect them, they lead them, they care for them, they correct them, They guard them, they treat them when they're injured or when they're sick, they search for them when they're lost. Peter here tells his readers that that these are the kinds of things that elders or pastors are responsible for. A former professor of mine who teaches pastoral ministry and has written about these these kind of issues, he's made the case that, that the metaphor shepherding is the primary metaphor in the New Testament for what it means to pastor God's people. In fact, the word pastor means shepherd, right? It's just another word for shepherd. Think back to that list of what, of what shepherds do, and you may even have other, other thoughts in your head of what shepherds do. What a, what a, what a high calling, what a, what a heavy burden, what a heavy weight it is to be responsible for pastoring a church full of God's people. 
It's one thing to be responsible for, and to, to the owner for a, for a number of animals, a number of sheep, but something else to be responsible to God for a group of people, a church full of souls. It's difficult for a man to take this responsibility for his own family, much less for a group of families. Now, consider for a, for a moment how many people one person is capable of pastoring this way. How many people can one person realistically feed and lead and protect and care for and correct and guard and treat when they're sick and injured physically and, and spiritually? Can one person shepherd 10 people that way? 25? 50? 100? 200? 500? Over the last six months or so, uh, we've been working on a membership project here at our church. And uh, initially we found that there were more than 1,600 people on our membership rolls. That's a lot of people, right? If you look around, there's not 1,600 people here today. We'll get to that here in a minute. But initially we found there were 1,600 people on our membership rolls. Now some of those people that, that are marked as members, we've, we've since found, have passed away. Right? And so we've marked some of those as, as, as being people who have passed away. Some of them have moved away and are part of other churches now and, and those kind of things. But let's say that a thousand of them are still around here and are still considered members of our church. What if 600 of them are? Can, can one person, can one man, called by God, gifted by God, all those kind of things, but can one man realistically even know that many people in a real way? in a meaningful way. Not just Facebook friends, right? But real knowing each other. Can he know them? Can he know their, their lives? Not to mention that there are just, realistically speaking, there, there are personality conflicts between people. Between, even between the pastor and, and, and certain individual church members. But if a, pastor, if a church has multiple pastors, like, like we've seen the Bible seems to instruct us, then they can share that responsibility of shepherding with even such a large group of people. They can take responsibility for feeding them together and protecting them together and leading them and caring for them and correcting them all together. They can guard them together and take time and focus on those that are sick and injured, knowing that the others are not being left behind. They can take on and meet this responsibility as they serve together. Even the most faithful, godly, gifted pastor needs help from other godly men called to the task in order to pay careful attention to himself and to every individual member of his congregation. The sixth reason is because of the burden. And, and just, just kind of personally, just kind of the way that it feels to be a pastor, this may be the weightiest of, of all of them. The burden of sharing the ministry, or sharing the burden of ministry. Listen with me, if you want to turn there, you can, to 2 Corinthians chapter 15. Second Corinthians chapter 15. If I can find it. There's not a second Corinthians chapter 15. Sorry. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. Sorry about that. That's why we need multiple people that can preach. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in the second half of verse 21. There's a weird kind of verse split there where the, the, the paragraph, a new paragraph begins at the second half of chapter 21. So there in, in the middle. Um, Paul's talking here. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Maybe I should give you just a little bit of context here. So Paul, there's this church in Corinth that Paul's involved in. Um, and as, so he's been there on a missionary journey. He's left. And as he's, as he's left, there are these false apostles. He sarcastically calls them super apostles. These false apostles have crept in. And they're trying to take over the church and, and trying to lead the church um, down, down some errors, some, some things that are not true, right? And so here in this passage, Paul is saying, are, are, do they think they're better than I am, right? It, it's, it's foolish to boast about how good I am because I'm nothing in Christ, he says. But if they're going to tell you how good they are as, as leaders, let, re, let me remind you some things about myself so that you don't follow these false leaders, but, but follow, follow me, right? And so we'll continue. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, right? It's foolish to say something like that, but in this situation, it was true. These people were not real followers of Christ. They were, they were false teachers. Are they followers of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Listen to all the stuff that's happened to Paul on his missionary journeys. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Think back to that passage in, in Acts where the people stoned him until they thought he was dead and then left him there for dead. Verse 24 says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Right? That means he was whipped 39 times. And they whipped him 39 times because they thought that 40 times was more than a man could stand. And so they whipped, so it was a, it was a thing they would do. 40 lashes minus one. I mean, they went right to the point of death and then stopped right before, right before he died. He said that happened to him five times. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, right? We read about that. Three times, he says, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst often, without food and cold and exposure. And then listen to verse 28. On top of all those things, he says this in verse 28. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Why would he mention that one last? Why would he, on top of everything else, all the physical beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and all those kind of things. Why would, he mention, why would he mention that last? I think this was Paul's greatest burden. More so than all those other things, this constantly weighed on him. His worry, anxiety, burden for all the churches. Few people, few people know or understand the burden of being a pastor. Few people know that. Few people understand that. Few people understand the worry and the grief and the hopes and the strugglings and the failures 
and wondering if things are his fault. And disappointments that a, that a pastor faces. I mentioned before that there are 1,600 people on our membership rolls here today. They're not, if you look around, I should say, if you look around, you'll notice there are not 1,600 people here today, right? There's not 1,000 people here today. There's not 500 people here today. One thing that weighs on a pastor so much is where are those people? Why are they not here? It's almost, almost December already, and I can think of people that haven't been here one single time in 2018. And not, not those 1,600 people that someone way down the list that, that I've never met before that hasn't been here in years. There are people that were here just last year that were committed, seemingly they were committed, all about it, haven't been here one single time in 2018. People who've been baptized in the last year or two haven't been here in, in months or weeks. So, some, not to be too personal, but some of those people are your children, or your parents, maybe, your sisters, your brothers. Some of them are your neighbors, your friends. Where are they this morning? Why are they not gathering with us this morning? Are they still trusting in Jesus? Have they turned away from him? What could we do to draw them back? What can our pastor, Josh Green, do to draw them back? These are the burden, this is the weight of being a pastor. Should he call them? Are they home right now, thinking that they haven't been here so many weeks and no one's reached out to him, so he should call them and get in touch with them? Should he not call them? Are they at home right now thinking that, uh, will, or I should say, should he not call them? If he does call them, will they ignore his phone call? Send it straight to voicemail, not answer it? Will they answer it and then again say how much they've been missing being here and how glad they are that he called and promised to be here again next week, just like they did a month ago? When they see his number on the caller ID, will they immediately sigh and make some comment to those around them about how he won't leave them alone and even if they were thinking about coming back to church, their, his repeated phone calls make them not want to? Should he call them? Should he not call them? Are there people that avoid you at pickback because they feel like you seeing them will start an awkward conversation about, about church and about the gospel and about are they still believing? I want you to imagine something just, just for a moment. Some of you, it may be closer to the truth than, than others, but imagine for a moment that you have an adult son or daughter. Imagine they grew up in the church and they were taught the gospel and they were taught what it means to follow Jesus. Imagine that he or she was baptized some years ago and, and for some time they were seeming to, to be following Jesus. Now imagine that this son or this daughter has, has stopped living a life of discipleship. Imagine it's been months or years since they've worshipped with a gathered church. Imagine your concern for that, for that child. Imagine your, your concern for whether or not they were ever truly saved. Imagine your concern for whether they think they're saved right now, but they're not, and so they're not seeking to be saved. Imagine your concern for how you might have been able to influence them differently growing up. 
Imagine whether, wondering whether something that you did or something you didn't do led them to where they are right now. Imagine wondering whether you should bring it up at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whether you should just let it go for the sake of having a good holiday. Imagine the prayers that you would pray for your child each night. Imagine the agony that you would feel over his or her soul. Imagine, again, the thoughts you would have about what you could have done differently while he was growing up. Is this your fault? Were you not a good enough parent? Were you not a good enough follower of Jesus that it turned them from the church? Imagine the thoughts you would have about what you could do to draw them back. Imagine every time you had a conversation with them, later you were second-guessing and rethinking what you could have said differently and what you should have brought up or what you should have left unsaid. Now imagine that you have a hundred adult children like that. Imagine the weight of knowing they might be believing a false version of the gospel. Imagine the weight of wondering whether they really are saved or not. Imagine the weight and the burden of what to do about it. That's a similar to the burden felt by pastors who take their calling seriously. Maybe you're thinking, though, that that's going a little bit too far, right? Maybe you're thinking that pastors are not responsible for people that way. Maybe you're thinking that there's only so much a pastor or anyone can do and that people are responsible for their own decisions. Of course, that's true, but it's also true that pastors have a responsibility to each person under their care. It's also true that pastors have a responsibility to God for each person he's put under their care. Josh Green read this morning earlier from the end of Hebrews. I'm going to read that one verse again. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders. Leaders being another word in the New Testament uses for pastor, elder. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. They're keeping watch over your souls. But listen to this last phrase. As those who will have to give an account. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. When you die, you'll have to stand before God and give an account of your life. You'll be held accountable for what you did with it. When a pastor stands before God, he'll also have to give an account of his life but on top of that, he will also have to give an account for how he has kept watch over the souls of those that God placed in his care. What a heavy, weighty burden. If it weren't for the calling that God has on people's lives, and if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit sustaining him in that call, no man would be able to bear that burden. In churches that have multiple pastors, the way the Bible instructs us, they can share in carrying that burden. They can shepherd the church together. They can bear the responsibility and the burden that that brings together. 
You've probably heard the saying, many hands make light work. Well, having multiple pastors doesn't make the burden any lighter. But it does help to be in the fight with others. It does help to have others to help you carry the weight, bear the burden. There could be other reasons that we could talk about, but at least six reasons why it's healthiest, most biblical for churches to have multiple elders, multiple pastors. The Bible tells us so. Wisdom, balance and out strengths and weaknesses, continuity when one leaves, shepherding together, and bearing this weighty burden together. So I want to ask you to do a couple things today as we, as we finish. First, I want to ask you to, to commit yourselves over the next few weeks as we study this topic to submit yourselves to what God says in his word. Commit yourself to submit yourself. Commit yourselves to submit to what God's word says about this subject. Don't let how you're used to the church being set up cloud how you see and understand what the Bible actually says. Also, I want you to consider how God might be calling you to serve in his church. Right? We've been focusing on one office this morning, the office of the pastor, but the church is not only made up of pastors and, and deacons. It does have those offices, but there are other people involved in the church, obviously. The Bible says that God has given these, past, these positions, pastors and elders, not to do the ministry of the church, but to build up the church for the work of ministry. So the work of ministry is to be led by the pastors, but everyone is to be involved in it. And so I want you to consider where your abilities and where your interests may fit you into the ministry of our church. The Holy Spirit's gifted each one of us differently Paul describes the members of a church as being like a, the members of the body, all working together, all having different roles, all having different functions, all having different parts, but all working together and all necessary for the success of the body. Seek the Lord and look for how he's gifted you specifically to be involved in this body, how he's gifted you specifically to fill the necessary role in this church body that would not be filled if you weren't here filling it. Finally, maybe you've never really thought about the, the church in, 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 in these terms before. Maybe you've never thought about pastors in these terms before, right? Maybe this is something kind of new, a new idea to think about, that God's placed people in a position with responsibility to oversee our souls. And so I would encourage you to do what Hebrews 13 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It's not a blind obedience, right? It's not a, it's not a submission where you lose your yourself or lose your, uh, your autonomy, right? We're, we're, we've already talked about how we're congregational, so the congregation has final authority. But in a right way, in a good way, obey your leaders and submit to them, knowing that they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And then the next verse says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's, let's devote ourselves, commit ourselves to being the type of church members that it's easy to pastor. Being the type of church member that it's a, it's a joy to oversee. Let's pray. 
Father God, we are thankful to you this morning that you are so good to us. God, we're thankful that you have saved us. God, we're thankful that you have made us your people. And God, we're thankful that you've called us together into your church. And God, I pray you would help us to think well, to understand well, to know what your word says. And then, Father, I pray you'd give us wisdom to do what your word says. God, I pray you'd help us to make wise decisions, to make good uh, decisions on, on how your church should best be organized. Help us to do that. And Father, I pray that you would give us men as, as you have. Help us to recognize those that you've already given us. And Father, give us more men who are qualified to be deacons and who are qualified to be pastors, elders. And then again, I pray you'd give us more men and women that are gifted to serve your church and help us and help them to find those roles where their gifting lines up with the ministry of our church. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our good shepherd, who perfectly oversees our soul and finally brings us to you. It's in his name we pray, amen.